welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 38, recorded on September 3rd, 2019. US East 1's on fire. The Cloud Pod says that the mother burn. Good evening, guys. How's it going? On a fantastic Tuesday evening. It's so much darker than it was last time we recorded. Yeah, mornings tonight. It's a little <laughs> weird. <laughs> hey, Jonathan, you're back. How's it going? Feeling better? I am. Thank you very much. Oh, fantastic. And uh, as we promised on the last show, Ryan is also back with us. Hi, Ryan. How's it going? I'm so Good. glad to be here this evening. I don't think mornings are for me. <laughs> yeah, mornings are rough. Uh, there was a lot of coffee consumed to, to make it through the last show. But uh, let's get to it. We have uh, lots of fun topics. Uh, so the first one, uh, we have a follow-up from a couple weeks ago. We talked about Cloudflare's uh, IPO. Uh, and there was a placeholder in the article of 100 million, and Peter called me out because I said 100 million, and I didn't mean to because it was a placeholder. Uh, but they have now announced that they are trying to seek 483 million at a 3.5 dollar billion uh, valuation. So uh, that's going to be an interesting IPO. We'll see if they make all the money they want to, or if they uh, are underselling their assets, and we will find out as they go public later this month. So. Definitely makes more sense to raise more than 100 million dollars. So good. Yeah, sure. I, I get it. <laughs> Hey, show notes, show notes are hard, Peter. That's all I have to say. <laughs> Our good friend, US Tire Fire 1, or US East 1, as some like to call it, uh, had an unfortunate outage uh, on Saturday. Apparently, they lost a single availability zone uh, of the 10 that they have in the East region, which uh, no one actually think knew they had 10 other than Amazon, because <laughs> they only show three to most customers. Uh, but apparently, they had a power issue at the data center where they flipped over to backup generators. Uh, something went wrong and they lost power to the entire rack, uh, resulting in up to as much as 7.5% of all instances in that AZ uh, failing by 6.10 a.m. Pacific time. Uh, it took them several hours to recover. Uh, this impacted EBS and EC2, and some EBS volumes uh, were unfortunately unrecoverable. Uh, 0.5% of the instances remain in that state as well as the storage. Uh, so that's unfortunate if you were in that AZ, but if you're using best practices in cloud, uh, you know, cloud standards, you should have been in multiple AZs and not impacted by this outage. Wow, what do you think really happened? I think, I think with the price of gas, they just couldn't afford to fill up the diesel tanks. Yeah. It's funny. <laughs> I mean, you look, at the, you look at the numbers, though. So it's one of 10 data centers in one of the six availability zones. So the one AZ has... 10 data centers of its own. So that means there's up to 60 data centers in US East 1. I have dreams of driving cool. through the countryside of Virginia, going by concrete boxes on either side with big air conditioning units and backup generators next to it, and yeah. just fields, fields of them, as I tell you, fields. Sounds um, like a man who's never been to Reston, Virginia. It is not exactly <laughs> where you'd want to be. I don't, I don't think it means 60. Yeah. I, think it, I think it means there's 10 data centers. I don't think so. Six AZs. Uh, I don't, that's not the way I read center. it. Yeah, yeah. They lost one of ten data, data centers in one of the six availability zones in the U.S. East One region. Yeah, yeah. saw a failure of utility power. And it makes sense. I mean, if they if they lost seven and a half, they lost a whole data center, but they only lost seven and a half percent of the instances in that AZ. And there's a lot of data centers per AZ. Yeah, it's interesting though that they lost power at 4:33, and then the generator started failing at 6 a.m., uh, which does lead some credence to uh, what Jonathan said, which they maybe they had a power failure. Oh, Sometimes no, they just forget to fill the tank. That was explained, right? Well, anyway, I had to stop you because that's that's technically in the NDA confidential. Uh, okay. We can't talk about that. Okay, uh, so it's not in a public one. Cut it's it not out. In a public one. Yeah. 
Oh. <laughs> like I was already, it was already bad enough when, when Jonathan and I said, oh, it seems like a fuel problem. Which, <laughs> I didn't know that. I wasn't in that meeting, so. <laughs> they did send us an official RCA this morning that talked about those issues. Ah, uh, okay. Well, I will tell you that that 7.5% would be uh, 113th. Yeah. One thirteenth of one availability zone of the six availability zones. I feel like I'm being missold the service then because an availability zone is is a single point of failure, right? That's what they say. So uh, so are they saying, uh, I don't know, I want a clarification. But it, it, there is some there is some expectation of distance between A Z. So they're they're in the same metro, but they're not necessarily next to each other. So if you put ten data centers you know, in like a 10 city block radius and they're all next to each other, that technically is one availability zone. It has to have at least a little bit, like a mile or two of distance, I think, for it to be a second availability zone. Each availability zone is within a certain number of miles of the others to guarantee low latency between availability zones. But an availability zone is not necessarily one data center. Absolutely yeah, that not. Yeah, that makes sense. So if that's the case, then I think we have some, some uh, flexibility for negotiating pricing of cross-AC traffic because clearly they're swallowing the cost between some of these data centers. Oh, they have to be in some cases. I mean, yep. I'm sure there's a lot of dark sure. fiber and, and things that they're leveraging to get the connectivity between these sites. Mm. So. Yep. Carrier pigeons, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. sure. You know, lasers, <laughs> microwave, you, you name it. it it's there, I'm sure. Uh, so yeah, so uh, if you are officially uh, have support or and you are infected by this outage, you can get an official RCA that has more details uh, than we can talk about. Uh, but the official public answer is that uh, something failed with their backup generators. And so that's unfortunate, but things happen, and that's why you are cloud-architected to uh, avoid outages of a single AZ. So did they notify people proactively? They did update the status center, which is where I pulled this text from, uh, and that was updated real-time as they diagnosed the issue and addressed it. And if you had support uh, through a TAM, uh, you were also notified through that process. But uh, if you did not have a support TAM, no, you were not proactively notified. Mm. Boo. How would they proactively notify 100,000 customers, though? That's not my problem. <laughs> would, you, would, you like, would you like them to send you an SQS message? Or would you like them to send you an email of some sort through SES that also might be impacted by the outage? I mean, it's, it's a bit of a, a tough scenario because, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg in this one? Well, I would like that. a candy gram. You think? A yeah, glitter yes. bomb. Well, I think Werner should have called everyone personally. <laughs> you get you know, one of those auto-recording auto-dialers <laughs> and just, hi, yeah. this is Werner Vogels telling you about the outage today on US East 1. That would be like computer cut in. Hi, this is Werner Vogels. I'm telling you about the outage at US East 1. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, it would be more Polly-ish, mm, so I wouldn't yeah. quite sound that computery, but I hear you. I don't know. Polly is like creepily realistic anymore. I should use Polly as a guest on the show one of these days. Well, if, if Peter can't make it or one of us can't make it, I'll uh, voice synthesize somebody in. It'd be pretty Perfect. cool. Then can we you take someone else's voice in Polly now? Or can you, it's just a very natural sounding voice. Uh, no, they've got a bunch of voices in Polly, and, and Google have even more. But um, there, there are sites out there where you could record samples of your own voice, and then they will build a um, like a voice synthesis model for you, which uh, is which is pretty creepy. That's truly <laughs> terrifying. Yes. I mean, yeah. so you're saying that we don't have to do a podcast anymore? We can just type it up and have we Polly could. do the talking and the bickering between us? A little AI. Set the thresholds ahead of time, and who's who's going to be more cynical? Who's going to be all jovial? You know, we can jovial. One of us is jovial. jovial. Who's jovial? Is that a British thing? Jovial. I don't know. Yeah. It's funny. I think that's British for sarcastic. No, it's lighthearted. I thought it's like says Santa the British Claus. guy. 
Santa Claus. Is this is right. Santa Claus jovial. We're, we're clearly this is the first story, and we've already rat holed so hard. <laughs> yeah, gonna have right. to edit the crap out of this one. Yeah, I'm slowing you down. All right. Well, moving on from Tire Fire One, uh, let's move on to operational insights for containers and uh, containerized apps. Uh, so, of course, with the increased adoption of containerized applications and microservices, uh, this increases the burden for monitoring and management uh, and tracing through these systems. Uh, as containers normally short-lived uh, versus long-running EC2 instances, uh, it can be difficult to collect and monitor data across multiple running containers. And so CloudWatch Container Insights is the new feature, uh, launched in preview at the New York Summit and now generally available with added ability to monitor existing clusters uh, and new clusters and provide you insights into the computerization and failures for both new and existing cluster infrastructure across uh, Kubernetes, EKS, ECS, and Fargate. Uh, so I actually enabled this last night on the CloudPod uh, hosting infrastructure, which is ECS stack. And uh, it was a pretty simple uh, CLI cool tool you had to run to do it against an existing cluster because you have to uh, call out the cluster specifically. Uh, or you can turn on for default for all new clusters, but I'm not redeploying because I'm not immutable. Uh, but yeah, it's pretty nice and has some really great insights and CPU utilization and recommendations for what you might want to do with your container reservations, um, which is super helpful. So this is, a, this is a nice feature. This is something that's been missing from ECS for quite a while, and it's been native in Kubernetes. And so I imagine that you know getting EKS out there um, kind of spurns this on so you can have parity across the two, which is great because this is, you know, it's definitely one of the features that you miss if you, you know, if you do task level stuff and service level stuff, you don't have the same insights to pods and stuff as you do in Kubernetes. So this is great. You think one of those will die off eventually, ECS or EKS? I think they'll converge somewhere or it will always be two separate ecosystems. It seems, I mean, in Amazon, you know, nothing ever truly dies. And so that's the only reason, but I do think that ECS will probably not continue i think they're doubling down on eks and you see more features being released for eks um than ecs or you know when the new features are like this one where they're released for both and so it's you know they're they're two of the same thing and so it is really uh, it would be interesting to see them carry on both but they you know ecs has a lot of customers right now so killing it prematurely is also be a bad plan they never killed a service, right? We talked about this last episode um, when we talked about Google killing a hire. But, you know, I think they'll continue to invest in ECS in some way. But the, the really the reason why I think you're not seeing a lot of um, innovation there is because EKS is where they're behind and they're trying to catch up pretty quickly. Um, but, you know, I definitely think it's an area that we'll continue to see improvements over time. Yeah, and I mean, I think they'd love to see ECS be uh, continue to uh, make things super easy for people who are tightly integrated with other Amazon natives uh, to, uh, you know, give them that uh, proprietary but a more convenient service and let people pick, do you want the open standard or do you want the tightly integrated service? I was giving an adequate pause to allow you to speak. <laughs> <laughs> well, all I can think now is Ryan, Ryan said, do you say nothing ever really dies? Yes. All I can think of is that, that, that band from the, uh, they're from Virginia. From the night, late, late 90s, early 2000s. Oh, I'm going to have the song stuck in my head forever now. N-E-R-D. Oh, yeah, yeah. Pharrell Williams. I know that. I know that, man. I, there you go. I don't, I don't know anything you're talking about at this moment. Yeah. And so we should move on <laughs> to something more, more interesting. Uh, port forwarding. Uh, let's talk about port forwarding. It's, it's oh, great. Speaking about interesting. <laughs> oh, wow. Worst segue ever. <laughs> Uh, AWS Systems Manager Session Manager now supports uh, port forwarding. Uh, this is a, now through the 
AWS SSM command line CLI tool, you can now specify uh, ports. So you can do like uh, port 9999 uh, mapping to a port 80 on a, a host that isn't open with a security group. And this will now tunnel that connection directly from your web browser uh, to that port on that server. Uh, all through that single session. Uh, I actually played this last night as well, uh, and it was super easy to be able to just SSH to a box, you know, simple as AWS SSM start session uh, dash target, and then the instance ID, and I had a prompt on my server, and I was able to update it to the latest ECS agent, which was required to make insights work, uh, which was super helpful. Uh, and this is overall a really nice, uh, super simple thing to do, and uh, definitely, if you're looking for a way to get onto hosts and have that managed and audited, uh, these tools are fantastic. That's, that's amazing. And how, how easy is it now for anybody just to, to see an instance in a list of instances and connect to it without having to look up the private IP address and make sure they're on a VPN and everything else? It's, 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 it can be a huge time saver. Not to mention that now we don't necessarily need to have unique IPs assigned to all the hosts in all our VPCs across the organization mm. because we can still address everything uniquely using a, using a tool like this. So. Yeah, I used to be really against having an agent running on the host that can execute remote commands, but now, you know, I've moved on to a world where, you know, of immutable infrastructure and a huge amount of my daily challenge is providing access to these things in, in tightly regulated environments. And so tools like this where I don't have to actually plumb a whole bunch of users and keep those passwords in syncs and, and, you know, edit audit logs and trying to get all of that, you know, data in there so you can actually keep it secure. Let's expose it out to an outer layer, gate, gate all your controls at the, at, in this case, IAM layer. And it's a lot easier to manage, which is super cool. More tools like this. Yeah, for sure. I guess it helps that it's an AWS product and not not another third party that we have to investigate and decide to trust or not. Because I remember Jump Cloud from a few years ago, which Justin and I both use. And uh, was it you, Ryan, who, who cut that down when we suggested using it for uh, the yes, current it, gig? Yes, it was. It was? Yeah. Ah, so, so what you're saying is that your customers have beaten you down now, and now you think that it's a good idea to run agents. Correct. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, you know, for those of us who, who know Ryan and I and Jonathan, he know that we always win at the end with Ryan. It just takes time and persistence. So uh, He'll just drink you under the table. No, that's not true. That too, <laughs> for sure. Bring it. Uh, you can also do uh, use Session Manager now to interactively run individual commands on instances. Uh, so this allows you to specify a uh, command to run either on a single EC2 or on-premise instance managed by Session Sessions Manager. Ugh, excuse me. Uh, this enables you to limit user interaction to specific command or command sequence, and eliminates the need for bash and host and open inboard ports, uh, of course, as we just talked about with the uh, port forwarding. So this is a super nice uh, enhancement as well, where you can actually now restrict the specific commands that a user can actually run in that Session Manager. Uh, which is better for security as well. If you only want them to be able to log into a host and you know bounce Apache, um, you can now do that. And then is this getting logged at the uh, CloudTrail level? Yes, yes, it's all logged in CloudTrail, and you can Sweet. specify with Session Manager um, a bucket, and it'll actually do session recording. So you can actually, the every command they type into the SSH window, they can now record that into a bucket, and as well as RDP. Uh, so for, it'll do screenshots as you go through the process, and so you can kind of track and audit what people are doing on hosts, which is super nice. Yeah, because that's one of the big pains right now in getting like high trust uh, certifications is just um, being able to prove that you're logging everything that's going on in the boxes and that those log, you know, maintaining log integrity and just taking that away from the that user level is perfect. I've got a feature request though. I know it's only just been announced, but feature request is uh, let me send commands to all instances in the auto scaling group. Ooh, ooh, yeah. Because logging, mm -hmm. logging into those one at a time to do something is uh, troublesome. I thought there's something similar to that, but maybe not. 
I think you could. I think you can specify some of these commands by like you know any any instance that has a specific tag um, or things like that. You can do stuff like that. But I don't think you can quite do exactly what he just mentioned. But maybe you can. I had to go look at it, uh, and I don't have that time. <laughs> nope. <laughs> oh, there's there's a lightning round item. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> ah, when, perfect. Ah. Oh, we'll get to it. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the CloudPod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Well, uh, speaking of high trust, uh, since you mentioned it, Peter, uh, Amazon has uh, 64 services now that have achieved the high trust certification. Uh, this, of course, is the Health Information Trust Alliance Common Security Framework. Uh, and this high-trust certification allows AWS customers to tailor their security control baselines to a variety of factors, including regulatory or organizational needs. Uh, certification, of course, is valid for two years, uh, and it covers a wide number of services, um, although I was a little bit surprised it does not cover EKS, uh, which was a little bit interesting. But ECS and Fargate are both in there, so if you're using containers and using high-trust, that's in there, as well as Lambda and many other services that you come to love and use every day on AWS. I think, uh, uh, obviously, this is the direction they're going. High trust is cool because it just makes it super easy to um, say that you you passed the HIPAA um, bar uh, in a way that you can get certified. Um, I still, I'm not 100% sure. It's great that the services are high trust certified, but customers still have to get their workload certified. So I'm not sure how much that's going to help from a customer getting a workload certified on high trust. And uh, as I find out, I will let you guys know. Does it um, sort of help because it's you know kind of tying into the shared security model where there's parts of high trust that require certain things that now Amazon says they've got covered for you and you don't have to worry about those and just worry about the part that is yours? Right, but I mean, I felt, well, I mean, we were kind of already there other than like um, being able to log payload data on the network, which was we got uh, at uh, Reinforce. Um, but yeah, I, I'm sure it will come into play. There will be some easier areas, hopefully, uh, that make it easier to gather the evidence. But for the most part, you still have to gather the evidence on your system. You know, it's not a service by service uh, certification for the customer. Interesting. Uh, I was just pulling up the list here. Did they cover VPC? Uh, there's VPC, but do they cover the specific uh, recording capability, which would be interesting. I don't, I don't see it mentioned, uh, but that doesn't mean it isn't part of it. Um, but yeah, I, I hear you on that. It definitely makes sense that that's something that we have to kind of figure out if you're doing high trust uh, in a big way. Yep. Talk to your auditor uh, to get their advice uh, before you proceed. You don't want to get in trouble on this one. <laughs> don't, get in tr- yeah, so don't fudge this one. Yep. Uh, Client IP address preservation has come to the AWS Global Accelerator. Of course, the Accelerator is Amazon's Anycast system to allow you to route traffic to ALB, NLB, or Elastic IP addresses. Uh, And now you can preserve IP addresses from their origin all the way through to the ALB 
system, and you can now use that to then do typical uh, geographic targeting of content or IP restrictions and security groups, etc. And this was a, a nice thing uh, to really simplify that use case for using the accelerator, as before used to have a very large, uh, you know, only thing it could support was open to the internet, <laughs> which didn't always work for some security conscious organizations. Uh, but this is definitely a very nice uh, capability. Uh, the global accelerator does create, of course, create one ENI for each subnet that contains IP preserving endpoints, and will delete them when they are no longer required. Uh, and they also create a global accelerator security group by default uh, that they recommend you do not edit or delete uh, manually, as that will cause them some challenges. Uh, and this is available in all regions that currently support the ALB today. Anyone using uh, Anycast right now? I'm not. I, it would be interesting to have a use case for it. I just don't have one right now. Yeah. I haven't done anything with it either. I, I mean, I have in pre previous gigs for infrastructure services, you know, across multiple data centers. It was it made things a lot easier to use Anycast on over a backbone network so that you don't have to actually specify the service in this data center or this region or that kind of thing. You just you'd pump out to the Anycast address and then manage the traffic that way. Cool. It's very convenient for things like DNS if you think about, you know, having resolvers where you need them. But I haven't used it re recently because we don't, don't, don't have the use case today. Ryan, I have a new option for you to take your cloud practitioner exam. Uh, you can now do it from your home uh, or your home office in, without pants. Oh, uh, fantastic. <laughs> so uh, you can now take your cloud practitioner exam uh, through online proctoring through uh, Pearson OnView, uh, which is a pretty well-known online testing system. Uh, you can schedule a sit for the exam around the clock on the hour and again every 15 minutes. Uh, you have to have a reliable internet connection, a webcam, and a quiet place to test. Uh, webcam? They are available. Yep, webcam is required. Well, I mean, he, as long as he doesn't stand up, he's fine. Yep. <laughs> hey, that's not in the rules. <laughs> Uh, this is uh, still $100, same cost it would do if you were going into the testing center, so that you don't get a break uh, for doing it on your own time and own equipment. Uh, and then during the check-in process, you'll be asked to take photos of your work area, uh, which will be checked by security prior to the exam launch. Uh, and please ensure that your desktop is clean and that you're not within arm's reach of books, notebook, notepads, sticky notes, papers, pens, pencils, or anything else that you could be cheating with. Uh, and if they see you do anything like read the question to yourself out loud or someone walks into the room, you will instantly fail and have to repay your $100. So do take that... Uh, with a bit of advice uh, to be careful. Yeah, so if I have to clean my desk, I'm also out because that's that ain't gonna happen. <laughs> it's a disaster in here. And um, the artificial light source is also recommended. I mean, like, <laughs> is the sun not good enough? <laughs> I take all my proctored exams by candlelight. How dare you? <laughs> Uh, you can also apparently re uh, request accommodations for, like, you know, if English is a second language, they give you an additional 30 minutes uh, for the test, and that kind of thing is a little work in the proctored environment as well, uh, which is nice. Uh, you know, I, I still prefer just going to the testing center. That way I'm kind of focused and I don't have to worry about it. I normally do it at reInvent, so it's, it's an excuse to not go to a session in the morning, which is great. Um, but, you know, this is definitely a nice option for people who don't have a testing center nearby. And I assume this is kind of a beta test um, to handle the cloud practitioner, and then if this works well, um, I wouldn't be surprised to see this expand out to the other certifications as well. Yeah, it was my first thought is, you know, get in at pr practitioner level and then just slowly expand up the up the ladder, yep. which would be great. I mean, it's a great option because it's, you know, for, for those of us who are leaving the house adverse, you know, doing stuff in your house is fantastic. Yep. As long as you don't have kids running in and out of the back room or, or people talking to you or walking in on you while you're in the test, you're fine. 
All right. Amazon Chatbot, uh, which they just announced a few weeks ago, has now added support for Systems Manager. Uh, of course, this is still tied to using SQS. And so you set up a CloudWatch event for Systems Manager to SQS, and this will now set, notify you in your team chat room, either on uh, Chime or on Slack. Uh, and this is the same kind of feature we talked about a couple weeks ago with some of the other things with CloudWatch. Uh, still not bi-directional, which is really the thing I'm still kind of waiting for. Uh, but overall, nice to see them already adding new features to the Chatbot. Yeah, I was a little frustrated when I tried to use this because there's no API support for launching this. <laughs> so, like, it, it's all just GUI driven. It, it was very frustrating with trying to get that set up because I don't, I try not to do anything via that. And so I'm like, really? Well, that's a new service. So I want to do chat ops. It's yeah. got at least six months before it's supported by CloudFormation. So, but I want you know a chatbot to launch another chatbot. Like you know, I need these you know inception type scenarios where this begets that. Well, uh, so you I need know. it now. Uh, you, there is a CloudFormation coverage roadmap now available to you, just like the container roadmap, that you can go uh, make a feature request for them to add this for you. So you can make a pull uh, issue there at that system. So. Is this where you make fun of me for not being caught up on, on the shows? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Isn't that <laughs> every day? So yeah, I, don't, I actually just pulled it up to see if they mentioned the chatbot, and I do not see it uh, in the list. Uh, but... Uh, that doesn't mean that you can't go make that request to them right away and get it added. Well, they probably figure no one's going to use it anyway, so why goes the effort of adding it to CloudFormation? Why would you build the service if you didn't think anybody was going to use it? Ah, well, I mean, explain Chime. Well, yeah, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> and the cloud, you know, But the chatbot does integrate with Chime, so you're welcome. Ah, yeah, two services I, I don't want to use, so just link them together. Yeah, exactly. And you can also then add uh, WorkDocs and a couple others to it, and you'll be really set. <laughs> All right, well, moving on to features people actually wanted... Uh, Amazon ECS now exposes runtime container IDs to APIs and the ECS console. And I will pause oh God, for Ryan yes. to cheer. Oh my God, yes. This is this is so far overdue. The, the amount of pain this has caused me over the years of not being able to map a task ID to a container ID. Like, it's, it's just, it's been this mind-boggling, like, Rube Goldberg machine trying to troubleshoot. Did this log come from this or this? Yeah, so they, they, like to, they like to more elegantly call it. Previously, you had to stitch together multiple APIs to associate the runtime container ID or, or containers to the respective ECS task. Uh, mm. Of course, this association is useful for debugging. That doesn't sound like very Rube Goldberg, but uh, no, no, that's that's pulling your hair out. That's making a whole lot of educated guesses and then just plumbing against your replica sets and hoping you get lucky is what that's actually called. Yeah, well, and I, I know I think this is uh, when you and I first discovered ECS and how amazing it was compared to Kubernetes at the time. Um, this was the one big cr critique we had, I think it was our very first PFR. So, you know, congratulations, Ryan. It's only been three and a half years, but we finally have this feature. Victory! Victory is ours. And see, Amazon does listen to their customers just That's very right. slowly. Eventually. Uh, so yeah, so this is now available in the uh, Describe Tasks uh, API call as well as the Stop Task API call, and it is being exposed out to the logging infrastructure as well. So you can map those task IDs to container ID and actually troubleshoot things in a much more quickly and efficient way. So overall, really nice. Glad to see it finally three and a half years later. Yeah. Oh. So speaking about things that take three and a half years. <laughs> yes. Uh, speaking about <laughs> other feature requests that Ryan and I have long held. Uh, Amazon has announced improved VPC networking for AWS Lambda functions. Uh, and so this is a long-awaited thing. If you were doing cold starts inside of an Amazon 
uh, VPC uh, that you need to talk back through like a private gateway or something like that. that they, the cold start time penalty was uh, significant. Uh, and so, you know, we've been actually hearing from Lambda for a while that they were working on solving cold start inside of VPC as a big feature. Uh, they'd fixed cold start outside of the VPC last year around reInvent timeframe. Uh, and so now they're now leveraging the new VPC to VPC NAT uh, to require only one hyperplane ENI inside of VPC that they can now use for all of the containers running inside their infrastructure. And their statistics on this say that they reduce the uh, launching inside of VPC with a full cold start from taking 14.8 seconds uh, to 933 milliseconds. So thank you so, so much. Yeah. <laughs> well, I see their 14.8 seconds and raise them about another 14.8 seconds. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, it was more like 30 seconds. We yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, for the whatever, whatever lame print uh, print hello world statement they were using in that test, you know, yeah, 14.8 <laughs> seconds made perfect sense. But uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, your experience will vary, of course, based on what you need to do and what you're doing with Lambda layers and all that kind of stuff. But you know, overall, for their baseline, that's a that's a fantastic improvement. Imagine the cost saving, though. So, so you, you previously cost you 15 seconds worth of compute time. Yeah, it's a, you're going to pay a fifteenth of the time for a cold start than you used to. I wonder if you're actually being charged during a cold start. Yes, you, you are. Are you? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. See, this is we have an internal ceremony for cold start where we do a little dance in our office chairs while we're waiting for the lambda container to start. And so, you know, on one hand, I'm I'm excited that we're going to save money and the things are actually going to work in under 20 seconds. But on the other, you know, other hand, I you know, I'm a little I lament the fact that I'm, my dancing days are over. Oh no. Yeah. Well, so you'll just replace it with uh, CloudFront updates. That's fine. Then you, get, <laughs> then you can get lunch and coffee. So yeah. that's fine. That's an endurance race. <laughs> I don't know if I have that. <laughs> going to have to like start eating salads. We're going to do that. So yes, thank you very much to uh, AWS for both the ECS feature and the VPC Lambda feature. Both uh, things that Jonathan and Ryan and I have uh, felt pain for, and I'm sure Peter's felt pain in his clients as well. Yeah. Uh, they do listen to their customers eventually. So fantastic. Thank you, Amazon. All right, moving on to Google, uh, who has now taken the managed uh, service for Microsoft AD from private beta to public beta, which means that they think it's now more reliable till they kill this product. You could always manage your own AD, of course, on compute instances, but a managed service takes the burden of running AD and simplifies it for you. The managed service for Microsoft AD is run on a hardened, highly available service, uh, and it is an actual Microsoft AD with MS domain controllers, which I always find funny because both Azure and Google use this terminology because uh, the very first time Amazon tried to do it, they tried to fake it, and uh, that didn't really work very well, and they ended up pivoting away from that. Uh, but because it is an actual Microsoft AD, you can do things like uh, avoid incompatibility issues, use standard features like GPOs, and of course support the remote server admin tools or RSAT tools. Uh, all work as normally expected. Uh, it is virtually maintenance-free. Uh, it is HA automatically patched and configured with secure defaults, and it has seamless multi-region deployment in your own VPC. So overall, super, super nice. It does also support automatic domain joining, but they do not mention anywhere in the docs automatic domain leaving. So I'm sure that means you have a ton <laughs> of uh, dead artifacts in your AD, something fun to deal with. And then they do leverage uh, cloud DNS instead of Microsoft AD DNS. So that's a little bit of a different wrinkle, and you have to pay for that, as well as the VMs are hardened uh, with GPOs and controlling RDP through GPOs. Audit logs for your security people are written to Stackdriver, uh, including admin activity and data access for the logs. Uh, the service is free during the beta period, although like I guess I mentioned uh, you will pay for cloud DNS and the other services, uh, but uh, we don't know what this will cost, so we'll let you know when they announce pricing. I'd be really concerned if I was anybody doing business with Microsoft products anymore that, that they're going to just pull the rug out from under you and raise the uh, and change the licensing terms. They already did it with SQL Server, so I mean, what is, is AD next? That's a pretty foundational Windows technology that they've never paid, charged for, so I, I imagine there'd be a lot of outrage if they started charging for AD in any serious way. 
they're already under the gun with the adoption of, you know, Microsoft technology for things. So it's like if you start removing a key component to authorization for, you know, .NET and, and C Sharp, that's, that'd be a pretty uh, short-sighted play in my opinion. But Well, it's not short-sighted if you want people to leave other clouds and, and move to Azure. I think it wouldn't have that effect. I think it would be <laughs> migrating <laughs> off of .NET. I would, I would like to think so. Uh, it's funny, uh, Corey actually mentions quite often about that if you want AD, the best AD is uh, AWS's managed AD service, even better than Azure's. Uh, which I always find is an interesting quote that I've never poked at him on. Of like, why do you say that? Um, I'd actually be curious to see how he thinks this one compares. Google Cloud released a blog post uh, about how to use speech-to-text to transcribe your Twilio calls in real time. And man, as a guy who gets a lot of spam calls, I'm worried about now all my FUs being uh, transcribed in real time to those people. Uh, so you know, we'll see how that goes in the long term. But this is a pretty interesting. They talk about using the uh, Twiml stream command to stream call audio to a WebSocket server and then Google Cloud Speech to text uh, to take it from there. Uh, so overall, pretty interesting use case and something I thought was kind of interesting. So I thought I'd mention it to you guys here at the show. Twilio, as a service provider, um, does do call recording and all kinds of other things in really unsecure ways. This Twimmel stream is a much, much better choice. Uh, What's the, uh, what do you think the, the legal situation is around transcriptions of, of, uh, of calls? So I think when you, when you call into a call center and you get that message that says, um, this call may be recorded for quality assurance, uh, that's the base of them telling you they're going to record you for this type of thing. It's a lie, isn't it? They will be recorded. Yes, yes. It, Not it, maybe. It will be. Yeah. It will be. Uh, moving on, August uh, G on GCP newsletter came out uh, today, uh, which proved exactly what I thought, which is that they didn't do much in August. <laughs> uh, apparently, they were all taking vacation. Uh, they did announce, of course, the AMD Epic processors and the Cloud Run button, which uh, we talked about here on the show. Uh, they did also highlight a couple of interesting blog posts around trade-offs that CIOs and CTOs make uh, when driving business acceleration decisions in a hybrid cloud. Uh, and they did highlight the Accelerate State of DevOps report, which if you are in the DevOps space, um, I highly recommend reading the State of DevOps report. Uh, this is from the Does team who was purchased by Google last year, uh, Gene Kim and uh, many, many other smart people, Jess Humble, uh, et cetera, uh, are all part of this report. And they've written some amazing books like Accelerate and uh, The Phoenix Project. And so if uh, you're curious how your peers are doing in this space, definitely check out the latest State of the DevOps report, uh, which will either make you sad or make you super happy uh, through your process. And then, of course, a couple of customer use cases around Macy's and uh, Unibanco Brazil, et cetera. So overall, Google uh, had a pretty quiet uh, August. So I assume they'll come back with a vengeance in September with a ton of really cool features for us. I'm definitely interested in reading their latest content on DevOps. They always have a pretty solid approach. A lot of these companies, they put stuff out, and it's like hired a marketing company to put something together on DevOps. <laughs> they did half a half a survey, and yeah. they made a bunch of assumptions that supported their use case, and they wrote it up as a white paper. Yeah, I, I, I really don't like that particular yeah. model. Google usually does it. It usually has some really good insights in managing infrastructure. Well, uh, moving on to Azure, uh, so there was a great article in GeekWire this last week about how Microsoft and Oracle became uh, cloud buddies and what's next for their improbable partnership. And so this, uh, you know, we mentioned back in episode 27, Microsoft and Oracle, of course, partnered up to provide Oracle databases to Azure customers and vice versa. It basically, this article kind of goes into a couple things. Apparently, Oracle is uh, building its data centers as close as possible to Azure data centers now uh, with the goal to connect Oracle Cloud and Infra to Azure as seamlessly as Oracle will connect two of its own data centers in the same region, uh, which is really code for uh, Oracle tired of doing uh, planning for regions and just said, we'll follow Azure. Uh, and then this is the, the core promise of the Multi-Cloud Alliance to be able to link these things together. And they are now announcing their second region, which is Azure London and OCI London connecting. Uh, and there's an interesting pull quote here from Don Johnson, uh, EVP of Oracle Cloud. Step book and look at the reality. Look at it through a customer's lens, he said. At this point, most growth in the cloud is coming from big businesses who are not born in the cloud. 
a vast majority of them have a big Microsoft estate and have a big Oracle estate. And if the cloud platforms treat themselves as silos, it puts people in an awkward position because not all of these platforms will satisfy all of their needs. Uh, so very, very uh, interesting quote. I think both anybody who has a Microsoft estate and an Oracle estate hates their life on a regular basis. And so uh, I'm sure they're definitely looking at not using either one of these cloud providers uh, in the future if they really could help it. I like it when there's a leader in the space and number two and number three go ahead and partner to try to catch up. I just wish Microsoft would have picked number three. <laughs> you wish Microsoft <laughs> and Google had partnered up? Wow, that's fantastic. Um, I mean, Oracle, I mean, isn't Oracle number like eight? So it's like number two and number eight partnered up to become yeah. a slightly bigger part number two. Yeah. Uh, it was a little interesting, too. They talked about the partnership. Apparently, you know, Don Johnson from Oracle and uh, Scott Guthrie from Azure uh, started working the partnership at the beginning of the year. Uh, you know, they described the conversations as easy and natural and quickly hammered out details and then got Larry and Sacha on the phone to get them on board. Like, I, I, it must be interesting to have such a, a casual conversation with Allison, like, hey, I want you to get on the phone with Sacha. And we're going to talk about partnering up our clouds. What do you think about that, boss? I'm sure that was a fun conversation, considering how much yeah. of mortal enemies they've been for years. <laughs> <laughs> well, with a name like the Don, the Don Johnson, he obviously commands respect the world over. Indeed, indeed. It's old Larry and Don Club. You know, it's, it's good times. All right. Uh, Microsoft Azure has opened their first region in Switzerland. Uh, this is uh, coming after they announced that a region going to be opening in Zurich and Geneva in 2018. Uh, the new region supports core Azure cloud platforming services, as well as Office 65, Dynamics 365, and the Power Platform, uh, which does anyone actually use the Power Platform for anything? I don't actually know if that's the case. Uh, but this does bring the Azure regions to 56 worldwide with its large part of the company's overall strategy for Azure. Uh, and there was a quote here from Tom Keene, Microsoft's corporate VP of Azure Global. Microsoft cloud services delivered from a given geography, such as our new regions in Switzerland, offer scalable, highly available, and resilient cloud services while helping enterprises and organizations meet their data residency, security, and compliance needs. We have a deep expertise protecting data and empowering customers around the globe to meet extensive security and privacy requirements by offering the broadest set of compliance certifications and attestations in the industry. Uh, they then go on to highlight a few of their customers, including UBS Group, Swiss RE Group, and Swisscom already using this. Uh, and the, this does bring it to the point that AWS does not have a region in Switzerland, but Google Cloud does have three AZs uh, near Zurich. So uh, Microsoft is now in Switzerland, so they're very neutral out there in the space. Right. It seems like a an obvious place to go stick a data center with a unique neutrality political landscape and the uh, huge amount of FinServe there. Yeah, and they have you know very tight data controls for Swiss uh, residents, right? So it's uh, it's even before GDPR, Switzerland was one of those countries that was just known for like if if you're hosting you know a service to a, uh, to people in Switzerland, like it's it's amazing that data cannot leave the region. They're very tightly controlled, and so I'm I'm surprised that they all haven't had to race there to get that business. But I guess go Azure. Well, and uh, and Google and Google. Yeah. Azure has announced the ability to track the health of your disaster recovery with log analytics. Uh, and I'm going to start this one out with a pull quote because uh, I didn't actually understand what this article was until I read this quote, and then I realized I don't ever want to use this product. Uh, so Mayuri Gupta writes, uh, Once you adopt Azure Site Recovery, monitoring of your setup can become a very involved exercise. You'll need to ensure that the replication for all protected instances continue and that virtual machines are always ready for failover. While Azure Site Recovery solves this need by providing point-in-time health status, active health alerts, and the latest 72-hour 
friends, it still needs several man-hours to keep track and analyze these signals. The problem is aggravated when the number of protected instances grow. It often needs a team of disaster recovery operators to do this with hundreds of virtual machines. Uh, so yeah, uh, I guess that's a tool that helps you solve this problem, because that sounds awful. That does. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, what? <laughs> Yep. So uh, apparently, you know, the article goes on to talk about, you know, even with alerts, long-term collective actions are difficult to identify as there is no single pane to look at historical data. Uh, customers want to track various metrics such as RPO, data churn, current state of VM, and test failover status as some basic requirements. Now you can basically take this data, you pass it into a, a workspace in log analytics, and you use the Custo query language to produce historical trends, point time snapshots, as well as disaster recovery, admin level, and executive level dashboards for consolidated views. Uh, this enables several different use cases, including trends of RPOs, trends of data change, snapshot status, alert status, RPOs, etc. Uh, and so this is, if you're doing this terrible, terrible thing, uh, I apologize to you in advance. Uh, but Azure is trying to make it better with this new tooling, and I hope it does help you because this sounds like a really bad day. Active, active application design, and then none of this is required. I, I, yeah, this this does sound like a chore. Maybe you can link it in with some kind of like cloud functions or Lambda so that if the disaster recovery situation is unhealthy, then uh, it just auto-books you a ticket to the Bahamas or Costa Rica or someplace, <laughs> and you just make your, make your exit. <laughs> My Slack status to vacationing and buy me a ticket to anywhere. <laughs> uh, so anyway, so uh, you can now unlock insights from documents with the form recognizer on Azure. Uh, this is, you know, you've always had the ability for printed documents, but now they support handwritten and mixed mode printed and handwritten. Uh, for the form recognizer product, this can be used to extract data from medical forms, financial forms, insurance, manufacturing, etc. Uh, this leverages Microsoft's vast experience using OCR poorly and machine learning. Uh, to analyze the forms and extract data objects from them to be processed uh, through your machine learning system or through whatever else you want to use. Uh, there is a quote here from Avanade. Uh, Azure Form Recognizer takes a vast amount of effort out of the process, changing the task from data entry to data validation. So super, super nice and uh, good tooling. It goes along with Textract and some of the other tools we've seen from Google as well. Yeah, I was going to say, well, next time we do the uh, our predictions for the uh, when we do the end of year show, I'm just going to look at what... Amazon and Google did three or four months earlier, and then I'm going to predict that exact same feature for Azure, and uh, I'm going to win. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that might happen. I, I, I can't say you're, you're not wrong. So. Yeah. The problem is you told us, and now we're just going to do the same thing. Yeah, there's limited selections here, and you know the the, the tiebreaker in chief is here on the call. So mm. yeah, now I'm under the strategy. So. Yeah, he's onto it. He's onto you. Uh, well, in that case, I've, I've negated your chance of using that tactic against me. But isn't it, isn't it disappointing? I mean, Microsoft were um, kind of leaders in OCR for quite a while, and they didn't do anything with it. Like, why, why are they being, why are they falling so far behind when they were really pioneers for such a long time? The, I, I actually was not aware that Microsoft considered to be a pioneer in OCR. So, well, no, not necessarily OCR, but in general, they've they've done a lot of good stuff in the past. It just seems like they lost their way somewhere. <sighs> I mean, the, I call it the uh, 10 years of Steve Ballmer as CEO uh, era. And, you know, why Satya has definitely turned that ship and has made it much better. Um, you know, there's still still years of innovation that they missed out on that will eventually they'll catch up on uh, in the next few years. But, you know, it, it takes a while to restart the innovation engine of a company like the size of Microsoft when, you know, Steve Ballmer kind of ran into the ground. Mm. Uh, I mean, you know, that's. I mean, and they've spent a ton of money investing in Azure, and you know, you had to catch up on that product. Uh, they're a solid number two play, maybe a, maybe even number three if Google continues to execute on the way they're executing. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's sort of sad. I agree with you, but also, 
I think Linux and, and open source has really kind of taken the day in a lot of areas, too, which is not bad for humanity either. Yep. Uh, Azure uh, has summarized their monthly set of cost updates in their August 2019 cost newsletter. There's several new things they uh, have released in the last uh, couple days for the newsletter. Uh, targeted budgets with filters and forecasts. Uh, so now you allowed you can filter your forecast and budget down to an entire organization or to a single resource. And then you can also see the trend and the forecast of those single resources based on those filters. Uh, they announced saved and shared customized views and cost analysis, which we talked about here on the show a couple weeks ago. Uh, they now support dark mode uh, for all those who want dark mode. Uh, in their cost data. And then they have uh, more flexibility for creating and managing subscriptions, updated tags for app service enhancements we talked about here on the show, and they've released several new videos about how to do Azure cost management for Azure GovCloud, uh, working with APIs and debugging, optimizing Cosmos DB, and they've enhanced uh, quite a bit of their documentation. So if you're struggling with costs on Azure, there's um, some new tools for you, and you can now do it in the dark. So you're welcome. Nice. Perfect. I'm never going to do like cost management, you know, and the sun shining first thing in the day. No, it's always apprehensively when I have to late at night. And so, yeah, dark mode is, is very appreciated here. But no, I mean, the, the forecasts and the and the ability to filter these costs is a long overdue feature for these things. And so this is, you know, it's, you know, this is a, a bare requirement that I'm glad they got to. So Jonathan, uh, does your does your strategy for predictions work the same way? So in Google, and AWS, or sorry, Google and Azure are doing cost management newsletters and tons of cost management uh, enhancements. Do you see AWS falling in the footsteps? You see Azure saying, or AWS saying, "Nope, you don't need that stuff." That'd be ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yep. Uh, cost management—it's a fun problem to have. Uh, glad I don't do it for a living. Uh, but anyways, that's it for this week on new news. Uh, let's move on to the uh, lightning round, Peter. Starting quickly, AWS Site to Site VPN adds configurability of security algorithms and timer settings for VPN tunnels. I wish I was smart enough to understand this one. <laughs> if you feel like your you know, standard industry security algorithms aren't good enough for you, this is the right solution for you. But uh, yeah, it's right. a little weird. I like to, I like to uh, point out that if you set your timer to a very low value, like I don't know, five minutes, that uh, you'll have a lot of really weird disconnection activities happening all the time as that tunnel gets renegotiated. So uh, your, your experience may vary on how effective this is for you. Uh, does it make you re-authenticate? Like, you know, that, you know so that every five minutes, just get to put a password in for those super secure environments? It's, um, it's pretty cool that they've integrated it with uh, IAM so early on, so you can you can control who has access to tweak these settings once uh, the VPN's in production on a very fine-grained level. So quite why you'd actually want to give anyone permission to do that once it was up and running, I don't know, but win for IAM. AWS X-Ray now supports Amazon SQS. So the, the one service that I would really care about tracing that's been around for the longest is now finally supported by their mediocre tracing solution. Fantastic. Turns out my request is just sitting in that queue. Thank you, X-Ray. <laughs> but only, only if, you, uh, only if you've particularly measured the SQS so you know how many messages are there first. Oh, my God. <laughs> you felt that. You didn't just say it. You felt it. That is a, that's going to be tough to beat today. Yeah, that was uh, there was some pain there. I feel like, <laughs> where did? Hey, Ryan, where did SQS touch you? <laughs> Show me on the graph. It's, it's a painful memory that I don't like to talk about very much. Uh, Touched him at four a.m. in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lower threshold for AWS WAF rate-based rules. Hey, you know what would be great is if I built a security product that only worked if I had massive amounts of traffic going to a system 
And I call that Amazon WAF until now. And now I can actually use it for systems that only have 100 transactions per second. So there you go. You're welcome. Is that really it? Really? Yeah. Is that it? Really, oh, that is it. Yeah. No, I, I read this disbelief. I'm like, wait, I mean, you, you didn't have you know, the new threshold of 100 requests per five minutes. Uh, it was previously 2,000 requests per five minutes. Uh, gives you con- greater control for stopping slow brute force login attempts, limiting per user API usage, and blocking low volume denial of service attacks. Yeah, I mean, th- the whole slow Loris attack was, was pretty cool when you just slowly start just sucking up all the resources of the web servers and they never triggered anything. So this is, this is pretty cool. Yep. Now select resource. <laughs> this was mine. This is what I was yeah, uh, they're not even typing over I know I'm watching those freaking cursors and I'm like, they're going to start typing something. Um, <laughs> there it goes. <laughs> now select resource groups as targets for AWS systems manager run command. If only someone had this idea like 40 minutes ago when we started <laughs> yes. recording. Yes. <laughs> Amazon Route 53 now publishes query volume metrics for public hosted zones. They've clearly been billing us incorrectly the whole time then. <laughs> yeah. they, were only, they were only billing you on the individual record. Now they can bill you on the record plus the zone. You're welcome, Jonathan. Yes, going from one millionth of a penny to three millionths of a penny this month. I mean, it'd be nice, though, now that I know all those domains that I keep buying and squatting on, which ones are actually being, you know, people are actually trying to query them, then I can figure out how to monetize them properly. I know. Doesn't it, doesn't it pain you to think that 20 years ago or something, we could have registered a bunch of domains and <sighs> been, been uh, domain squatting millionaires? I, I look at those companies like uh, Data General. Oh, is Data Domain? or Yeah, there's companies that squat on those things and make millions of dollars on domain names. I'm like, oh, you guys are geniuses. I respect you and i hate you all at the same time oh they really are the cockroaches of the internet but you know cockroaches will be here long after we are so i mean they're right up there with patent trolls but i i you know again i i applaud them for their ingenuity i always wondered you know if i'm searching for a domain to to purchase and all of a sudden i find one which is free I like to, I feel like I have to buy it straight away because I, I'm sure that somewhere on the back end there's a little flag goes off that says, yeah, they're watching. They're it's watching. like, hey, this, guy, this guy's interesting. Let's buy it now and sell it back to him for three times the price yeah. or 300 times the price. Well, and they, they have all kinds of arbitrage stuff too. Like, you know, as a domain expires, its life cycle, and you know, until someone doesn't renew it, the, these companies jump on it faster than the other. It's like stock trading, but for domains, that's crazy. So. Okay, back to lightning round. Amazon Elastic Cash for Redis adds support for customer-managed keys in AWS Key Management Service for encryption at rest. Hang on, I f- say that again. I forgot the p- beginning of the sentence by the time you read all that. Amazon Elastic <laughs> Cash for Redis. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, Redis barely supports TLS, so I'm, I guess I'm glad I, we, we support encryption at rest. Uh, and I guess they do not support TLS as well, but man, that took a while. I mean, isn't it all just EBS backed anyway? Uh, yep. Suspend resume scaling now available in AWS application auto scaling. Huh. Uh, auto scaling feature supports suspend and resume. Who would have thought it? Yeah, is th- this is pretty much like manually being able to manually do the cooldown settings, I guess. Like just manually stop doing everything and start. Yeah, no, I, I think this is literally like an EC2 suspend action, which is different than the stop or the terminate, right? This is really it is. Yeah, freezing that's, that's, everything in memory. Yeah, that's what they added, basically, was ability to yeah. suspend and resume to handle pausing and hibernation uh, mm. versus stop-start. So, I mean, it's, it's a nice feature. 
Um, no. It's just sort of funny how it's working. No, for Windows apps, this is key, right? That's like a if good you point. think about, and that's what it is, right? Like this yeah. is, you know, when you're you're a super lightweight Linux application, you just yeah, you spin up a new one and you start serving traffic on that new one once the hell check starts passing. Uh, actually, we're all wrong. I just pulled the article up. Uh, now you can suspend and resume the scaling actions on any of these resources uh, without having to delete the scaling policies or schedule actions. That's what <laughs> I said. Hang on, uh, we're not all wrong. We're not all wrong. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much what I said. <laughs> All right, then I yeah. yeah, then I don't know what I'm talking about, and I don't know why you'd need this. But what you're talking about is what uh, Opsworks did for years, though, where they they had no auto scaling concept whatsoever, and you had to deploy as many instances as you, as you were ever going to need. Yeah. So so that Chef Solo could very very slowly configure them, and then when it came to scaling, you'd literally power them off or on at certain times a day. It's uh, I mean, it sucked. Yeah, that sounds terrible. Absolutely terrible. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Justin. That was my introduction to AWS. Was hey, give us. <laughs> You're welcome. I like to I like to give you the bad way to do it. I mean, I could it could have been Beanstalk. It could have been Beanstalk. I just yeah, want to point it that could have been worse. I'm been slowly worse. understanding why Jonathan is this bitter, like you know, crushed hmm. man. <laughs> there's there's reasons was... why he hates me, and he you know I I know that, and it's okay. I I accept those faults that I've you know permanently scarred my relationship with Jonathan forever. It's cloud formation. That's what it is. Hey, do this with cloud formation. That's what that's what ruined me. Well, then you know, then I try to get you on the Terraform, and then you told me you hate Terraform. I just can't make you happy, Jonathan. I don't. I don't I know just, what to tell you. So. I blame CDK for that. Moving on. Well, yeah, okay. Lightning. <laughs> hey, this lightning is slow round. lightning. It's not the this mud is slow round. lightning. Hey, you know that that, that that hurricane <laughs> stalled out over top of Puerto Rico. <laughs> yeah, we, we can stall out over lightning round. <laughs> Amazon SageMaker notebooks now export Jupyter logs to Amazon CloudWatch. Why would you export your log to CloudWatch? This is the one I was like, huh? Why would you do this? What's, no, what's I know exactly why you do this. If you work with any kind of data scientist, you know why, why you do this. They don't know what they're doing. They are trying everything possible to get these, these models to work, and they have no idea when it does and doesn't work. And so the fact that you can get that off that machine and into somewhere else where you can parse these things, very handy. All right, fine. Fair enough. There you go. Common sense. Stop being so right. Sorry. Sorry. See, this is why you're here, because you, you deal with data scientists more than I do. Yeah. I do. I didn't get it. I was like, Jupyter Log. It's like a Jupyter Notebook. You just do it right there. Like, it's logged in, in front of me. Why do I need to output this? But I guess. PyTorch on Azure. Full support now for PyTorch 1.2. I mean, my Minecraft torches are all over the place. My son puts them on all the maps, and then he blows them up. It's just, there's a lot of torches. I'm not actually sure this is to do with Minecraft, but I'm too afraid to ask. It is nothing to do with nothing Minecraft. Nothing to do with Minecraft. <laughs> but I all, all I all I know is it says torches and all I can think is Minecraft. So that's torches. Right. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Google new release of cloud storage connector for Hadoop, improving uh, performance, throughput, and more. Improving performance is a win. Do I need a proprietary connector to make Hadoop do that though? It's kinda awful. Yeah. So it's that's a little weird, but all right, fine. Amazon FSX for Luster reduces minimum file system size all the way down to one point two terabytes. <laughs> which immediately made me realize that I have never used Luster and I have no idea what the minimum was before this, but oh my god, 1.2 terabytes is huge. Measly wow. 1.2. Yeah. That's expensive barrier to entry. Well, I mean, Luster is really made for massively HPC compute systems, right? So, I mean, you're talking about running thousands and thousands of nodes at the same time in a massive cluster. I imagine that's not cheap either. Yeah, exactly. And don't we all like have a terabyte of storage on our laptops now? So I guess it's not that much. But I mean, in fairness to my hard drive on my laptop, 90% of it's porn, 5% <laughs> is the operating system, 
I mean, and luster isn't going to help with that scenario. So, <laughs> no, you speaking of FSX, <laughs> Amazon SageMaker now supports accelerated training with new, smaller Amazon FSX for luster file systems. Oh, so I guess that's why they released that first feature. These seem related. Seem seem related. Is this something we had a linked? Lightning round stories? I don't, I don't remember that yeah, before. that was good. Why do you think it's linked like that, though? Do you think previously it had some kind of like, it was using your volumes that you were paying for for some kind of working space, and now they've moved it off someplace in the back, and you don't have to provision such big disks anymore? Like, I can't understand why it would ever have been a problem or need a, a new feature to, to do yep. this. There's Clearly spoken by someone who doesn't do HVC. So There's file system size greatly, you know, to get way nerded about this. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to bore all the listeners right now. Um, yeah, it's, it has a lot to do with uh, recovery times and moving data from volume from volumes to volumes, and so it's you know it's one of those things that to move data around gets very expensive, and so if you can reduce reduce little containers that you put that in there, you can get a lot of performance, which probably I don't know enough why that would help you. Okay, <laughs> how uh, I, mean, I mean I know you're a total hard drive nerd because of your your days on on Yahoo Mail, but. Uh, I mean, do you really do all this work to move spam mail around this much? I mean, it seems seems somewhat overhead for spam. Oh, you have <laughs> no idea how much spam mail I moved around. <laughs> and, uh, how many copies of the the uh, Neiman Marcus cookie recipe do you think Yahoo have stored? Oh, <laughs> oh. How many and, how many Nigerian email print scams do you think you got? Oh yeah, no, un- uncountable millions for sure. Yeah. Well, and the winner is Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> yes. After your anemic performance yesterday morning, that's a, yes. that's a win. Came back yeah, strong, no, hit that knockout punch in the second round. That was wonderful. You made my night, Ryan. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> what, was, what was that knockout punch again? Oh, just the pain in his voice when I was talking about <laughs> X-Ray supporting Amazon SQS. <laughs> yeah. So if anyone wonders why, why the violins were playing when Ryan was speaking earlier, it's because, <laughs> because of this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. All right. Well, thanks again uh, for joining us two two shows in a row, Ryan. We appreciate it. Uh, where can they me. Where can they find you on the Twitter universe if they want to follow your uh, anemic number of tweets? Yeah, I have a very very burgeoning uh, Twitter uh, going on at Ryron01, um, and it is you know I'm up to I think 13 whole followers now. Although I'll probably lose some after this experience after this uh, showing. So yeah. Yeah, we'll see. Especially that storage thing you talked about at the end. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was that brutal. That almost, <laughs> that almost cost you your victory there. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I almost threw it all away. Almost threw it all away. Well, that's uh, another fantastic episode here at the Cloud Pod, and uh, we will talk to you all next week in the internet. Thanks, guys. Well, uh, thank right. you. See you later. Bye. And that is the Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions.